Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. I am, with everlasting commitment to the cause of great conversation, your faithful friend and host, Daniel Finneran. Thank you so very much for joining me today. Uh, if, dear friend and listener and viewer, you find these conversations enlightening, edifying, entertaining, stimulating to the mind, or nourishing to the soul, please do consider subscribing to this channel. It's a small but growing community of inquisitive minds and fearless thinkers, among whom, I can assure you, yours belongs. For content specific to mindfulness, wellness, philosophy, literature, and sleep, please visit my sister project, Numa, P-N-E-U-M-A, by Daniel Finneran, available on all the podcast platforms and on YouTube as well. Uh, my guest today, of whose writings, opinions, and commentary I simply can't get enough, is the great John Banks. John is a journalist, an author, an editor, a sports reporter who's held roles at ESPN, Yard Barker, and the Dallas Morning News, and a Civil War aficionado. His Civil War blog and Facebook page, to which I'll be sure to include links in the show notes below, are visited by thousands of people who delight in John's erudition and his wit. His most recent book, The Civil War Road Trip of a Lifetime, is available for purchase at your local reputable bookseller. And I'm convinced that no bookshelf is complete without John's fine work on it. And with that, John, I extend to you my sincerest thanks for agreeing to join me today. Wow, that's, that's a tremendous <laughs> introduction. Well, so anytime that you mention sleep, uh, I may have to go check out that uh, what was that called again? I'm sorry. One more time. So, I'll be sure to send you a link. It's it's Numa P N E U M A, okay. which is a, a Greek word meaning breath. Um, but yeah, on that channel, I post all sorts of meditations, mindful exercises, and and um, like bedtime stories, usually of great works of literature, just excerpts of them for maybe thirty minutes, in a very now, sop soporific voice. <laughs> if it if it puts me to sleep, I think that would be good as a person who uh, battles insomnia <laughs> a little bit. I think that uh, that's very intriguing to me, um, and you, you immediately uh, piqued my interest when you said that, Daniel. So uh, I'll, I will definitely check that out. So yeah, to what to what do you attribute your insomniac tendencies? You we talk off camera. You're you know like me. You're a very mellow person. You have your <laughs> and you're, you're accompanied by your candle and your wine tonight. <laughs> yes. Well, the reason I'm mellow now is probably because of the wine. My, my wife would not say that I'm mellow, Daniel, whatsoever. In fact, last night she said that I'm wound tighter than a golf ball. Um, so uh, you didn't you didn't nail that description there of me quite <laughs> quite right, I guess. But yeah, I'm, I'm mellow because of the wine and the and my candle burning up to the right hand side here right now. Well, so, but, but I attribute the insomnia to uh, cell phone, uh, the phone, obviously my phone, which I'm, which is a, which is another appendage, unfortunately, and and uh, 
you know, I think society would be better off if we uh, found a way to chuck our uh, our our uh, our phones uh, somewhere else in a river, a lake, whatever. I think we'd all be better off. So yeah, that's just my opinion. So. In many ways, I agree with you, especially having lived a life, at, we can almost date it BC and before cell phone and, and uh, yes. <laughs> AD, uh, having lived a life in both ways, I, I think overall in the final analysis, maybe the, the, the life lived prior to the arrival, the advent of the cell phone may have been better. Uh, I will give you these two little tidbits of advice if the cell phone is the issue when you're preparing for sleep. And that is number one, to get yourself a good pair of blue light blocking glasses. Ah. You you've maybe have heard about these, but um, in the evening hours, they're especially useful just to try to block some of those blue rays that are coming through the eyes because what they do is they sort of stimulate a response that tricks your brain into thinking that it's, that it's still daylight and that you need to be you know, awake. And then your, you know, your melatonin that is produced internally is actually dampened. And another thing is try if possible for the hour preceding your bedtime to just shut off all screens. I know it's difficult. We usually fall asleep with, the screen. Yeah, with the screen on our chest <laughs> as we're lying down or in our laps. Um, or, you know, you're looking at your television screen on the wall. But if you can do that and maybe just start by doing it 30 minutes in advance of bed and then one hour in advance of bed, it does make a big, big difference. And there are some other some other tricks that you can employ as well. We'll have to talk about them later. <laughs> yeah, do a podcast. We get uh, we get superior advice. I feel like I have to pay you now. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. That's tremendous. Let's do it. Yeah. No, no. Those Excellent. Are just two, two simple things. We'll have to put something behind the paywall. Then, then you can totally. For which I, for you got to do that. <laughs> so. Premium. So, uh, so in my introduction, I described you as being a Civil War aficionado. And this term, aficionado, which I love, it's a, it's a marvelous one, of whose etymology the great Ernest Hemingway, in his first book, The Sun Also Rises, uh, gives, gives a memorable account. It comes from the Spanish word aficion, which means a great passion or a fondness, almost to the point of zealotry. So tell me, John, what is the source of your Civil War aficion, your, your Civil War passion? How and when did it begin to develop? That's a great question. Uh, it actually, uh, and I talk about it, write about it in the book, it was, uh, many, 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 many years ago. And this is not an atypical story. You know, I'm from Western Pennsylvania, grew up in suburban Pittsburgh. So a long time ago, uh, took a family vacation to Gettysburg, uh, my dad happened to walk into a place on Baltimore Street, which was there until, believe it or not, last year. It was torn down to make way for another place. But it was like one of those tourist traps. And he went in there and purchased uh, a sleeve of real Civil War bullets. And I have two siblings that are both younger, uh, younger than I am, a sister and a brother. And they weren't interested. And my dad gave them to, quote unquote, us, but they ended up with me. And in the book, I describe them as the three little demons that led, uh, partially led to my interest in the Civil War. And then, you know, that was when I was 13. And, and that was a long, long, long time ago. 
Um, but it, somewhere in my office here behind me, those three little demons are uh, somewhere on one of the shelves. And the shelves behind me, Daniel, are, are filled with uh, Civil War artifacts and artillery shells and books and all kinds of stuff. So that kind of started it. And then it just mushroomed from there. You know, I became a journalist. Uh, you know, uh, I think the, the foundation, if you want to be a good journalist, is curiosity. And uh, I'm a very curious person. I like to ask questions. Um, I, you know, as, as you mentioned earlier, I'm a long, a long time journalist. And for most of my career, I was uh, an editor. Um, only have really branched out to writing in the last 10 years. And, you know, I've used all the the knowledge that I gained as an editor and, and working with really terrific writers over the years, that all that stuff, the curiosity, the, the, the working with great journalists kind of just led to where I'm at now. And that's not at A to B, <laughs> B to B journey explanation for you there, but there's a lot of stuff that happened in between, but that's if you boil it down into its simplest form, that's kind of the kind of how it happens. So, so yeah, so, yes. so as a young, um, as a young man, maybe around the verge of manhood at about 13 years of age, you were introduced to these three demons about which you talk in your book, and ever since they've haunted you. Now, did you ever have a plan or an intention to pursue? American history as an academic study, as a, uh, you know, as a, as a field professionally? That's a good question. Uh, I went to uh, uh, West Virginia University a long time ago. I used to describe it as the, the, uh, the 12 best, greatest years of my life. <laughs> uh, and I'm being facetious, but had, a, had, a, had more than a great time there majored in journalism, but I minored in history. And my other choice for a career long ago was to be, you know, a history teacher in grade school or junior high. And and uh, uh, I think I got smart and uh, uh, discovered that, that teachers, unfortunately, don't make a ton of money. Not that money was my driving, journalists don't either, for the most part. Not that that was a driving influence, but uh, I've always had a deep interest in history ever, you know, since I was a kid, particularly, you know, my other obsession, I don't know how deep you want to go into this, is the uh, the Kennedy assassination, JFK assassination in Dallas. And uh, I've always been like the gamut. Like I remember going into, uh, I tell my wife this, and we actually visited Morgantown where West Virginia University is, uh, is and i pointed out the library and and she i don't think she believed it but there was one day i went into the library at like noon and and was just reading history books it ran the gamut on on all kinds of topics i i left at like seven o'clock or eight o'clock now walked out that. In, in what year of your matriculation was this? Was this year seven, eight, nine? <laughs> uh, let's say six for grins, okay? Morgantown's an interesting place, Daniel. You have to, if you've never been, have you ever been to Morgantown, West Virginia? 
I have not had the pleasure, but I do know that that West Virginia University is is either notorious or famous for its uh, ability to oh, no. party. <laughs> yes, uh, I was I was there, and I'm I'm to I want to preface this by saying I am not proud of this. Okay. But I was there during the couch burning era when, when all that stuff started. And again, I don't want my kids to see this and, and think, oh, my God, I can't believe their father did this. But the, the yeah, I, I've seen many couch burnings. OK. <laughs> and uh, yes, uh, the school was notorious for that. So, yeah. Anyway, where were we? I'm sorry. Daniel. Go ahead. <laughs> I don't mean to get off the beaten path here. No, no, no. This is a, this is a fine digression. Um, yeah. So we talked about the fact that you, you know, you pursued journalism always with this kind of latent curiosity and yes. this, this passion, this aficion uh, for the Civil War. Uh, now, during your recent course, uh, or your, I, I would say your recent iteration as an as an author and a blogger. Uh, do you ever feel any tension between uh, the academics and those who are aficionados? That's a good question. That's a really, really good question. Um, you know, I don't view myself, I'm not a historian, okay? I'm a storyteller and there's, there's a difference, okay? Um, you know, from my standpoint, uh, you know, as a storyteller, um, you know, you have to, to to make it digestible for the average person. OK, you have to be able to tell a good story. OK, that's that's fundamental. If you want people to read your work, OK, you have to be a great storyteller um, and historian or an academic. Um, and this is not a, a blanket statement. There are some historians and academics that are really good at telling stories, but they're, I don't know if their main mission is to, is to be a storyteller. And ho I don't know if I'm making sense here, but, you know, a journalist, my, I see my role in, in the book that I did, uh, A Civil War Road Trip of a Lifetime, is to, is to tell stories and present the, some history too, a lot of history, in fact. Um, so I think there's a there's a fundamental difference, and I'm not saying that doing what a historian is and doing what I do are like one's better than the other. It's just it's just to me what being a storyteller. I think you have the ability to appeal to more people. I think. And so that kind of, I think that kind of encapsulates where I'm, where I'm coming, coming from. So undoubtedly, and, and I do think that you you succeed in that that balance between uh, storyteller and historian. Yes, quasi historian in that book. Yes, it's 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 handled very adeptly, I think. Uh, yeah, it there is in the academic world in that realm you know a tendency toward being pedantic and unapproachable and yes. i think a lot of the recent publications that have really struck um, a chord and have really resonated with people have been written by journalists who are doing great work in in historical um, studies 
yes you know just for uh, we you mentioned jfk and uh, recently i interviewed an excellent journalist and biographer by the name of uh, randy tarabarelli and you know he's not a professionally trained historian he began writing about uh, diana ross in the supremes and motown <laughs> you know many decades ago and he sort of evolved into this uh, expert biographer of the kennedy family and i can't think of any historian any academic historian that is quite doing work that parallels with with his uh, so i think it's absolutely great that those who are just aficionados are continuing to put out great work as you are both between your blog and your your published work that's right here in front of me um, so i definitely applaud you and, and encourage you and everybody else who is maybe tentative about that about uh, entering or encroaching upon a field to which they maybe fear they don't belong to do so and, and to put out that material so long as it's it's well researched and has a certain fission, a certain passion behind it. I like the tie to to Hemingway and that word aficionado. Have, did you see the uh, PBS special on Hemingway? I did not. No, unfortunately, I know of it though. Yes. Uh, just recently, I actually just finished today writing an essay about Hemingway, and I'll have to send it to you. I I really enjoyed doing it. Um, I visited. Key West with my father this past June. Yeah. And of course, Hemingway spent, I think, basically the 30s between 1931 and 1939 yes. in Key West. And he has there still the, the Hemingway home. So I don't know if you've ever visited. If not, no. don't do go don't go in the summertime, but I strongly advise you to go in the in the winter and the weather is balmy and beautiful. And it's such a magical experience to be where he lived in this mansion, this Bahamian style, two level yellow house um, that is absolutely picturesque. It's just beautiful um, in every way. And to think that this American icon every single day went out to his little detached writing room and published some of the most everlasting works in the American canon is just just extraordinary. Um, but no, I Endlessly yeah. fascinating character. Yeah. Endlessly yeah. fascinating. Totally. Yeah. Yes. I need to go there. Now, is he one of your favorite authors? Maybe we can talk about him for a minute. I'm embarrassed to say that I almost exclusively, since I was a kid, have read nothing but nonfiction. And I don't know what that says about me, but as you know, Hemingway, I've probably read a little bit over the course of my life, was an absolutely fabulous writer. And, you know, the craft of writing, I, you know, I mean, you know, I'm just scratching the surface. Like, like I'm way, 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 way down. What he accomplished and what he did, you know, he was a newspaper reporter over during World War II. And, and I was so blown away by the PBS special, uh, particularly about his experiences over uh, covering World War II. And, and he covered, I, I believe he covered the, the prior to World War II was the, the, the fascist and the uh, uh, nationalist in Spain. He covered that war. He was just, he's just so fascinating. 
So yeah. one way yeah. they're saying, I need to read more Hemingway. And I think you would thoroughly enjoy him uh, because he, as you said, was a reporter. He actually forewent college. He didn't go to any fancy university to burn down couches for 12 yeah. years. Yeah. <laughs> he, yeah. At the age of 18 or 19, I think his uncle worked at one of the local newspapers, got him a job. And like you said, that was his, that, well, that, that, it was from that experience that he developed his very unique staccato, crisp yes. style. Um, yes. He went on to work, like you said, for the Toronto Sun. He was deployed on assignment to, the, to Spain to cover the Spanish Civil War, out of which was born For Whom the Bell Tolls. And he wrote that yes. later in, during his stay in Key West. And again, I'm very fresh on these details just because I, I just, like I said, just finished writing this essay about him. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a, uh, an expert on Hemingway. It's just very fresh in my mind. But I think you would especially like his short stories and, and his novels yes. just because he does almost exactly what you just described. As a journalist, as a reporter, He yes. is able to craft stories that are just so compelling, but still feel like you're there with him as a as a um, witness to what he's just reporting back to you. Yes. Just a little bit of color. He doesn't add too much. I mean, he almost totally foregoes the use of adjectives, yes. um, which he was advised to to stray away from by um, Ezra Pound. So yeah, it's like a very, yes. it's a very journalistic style that I think you would really enjoy. A marvelous eye for detail. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I need, now you're inspiring me. I, I need to go out and, and, and read some of Hemingway's works and add them to my shelves behind me that are 99.9% nonfiction. I'm embarrassed to say that as an American, you know, it's <laughs> terrible, but it's true. So. As, an as an American. Um, no, it's, I don't think you feel like a rube that, <laughs> that I've said that, you know, there's this journalist who's never read a lot of, you know, much of Hemingway. It's embarrassing. No, it's no cause, no cause of embarrassment. Um, especially because you have such a comprehensive understanding of the civil war. And that's one thing that I wanted to, um, to discuss is your, your knowledge of even the most obscure in seemingly inconsequential battles is uh, unparalleled. I don't think I've seen it <laughs> in any other writer. Um, so how do you, well, how do you discover the, the kind of the inherent fascination in these battles about which no one else really talks or knows? That's a good question. Um, you know, I was heavily influenced by Ken Burns's uh, special on the Civil War, 91, I believe, 91 or 92. It was really terrific. And one of the things at the very beginning, historian David McCullough, popular historian David McCullough, who, who's from Pittsburgh, by the way, he said some, uh, I can still hear, hear his voice resonating in my ears, but he, he goes, the Civil War was fought in 10,000 places from Tullahoma, Tennessee, 
to the Fernandino, Fernandino coast that was something like that in Florida. And I thought about that. And I think I, I told myself, you know, I, I'm going to go see as many of these 10,000 places as I possibly can. And, you know, for the, for the average person, like the civil war is like Gettysburg and Antietam, Spotsylvania courthouse and cold Harbor, but it, but there's, 9,900 and whatever other places it was fought. And the Civil War is not just battles, okay? It's it's the story of, of slavery. It's it's the, the home front. There's all kinds of stories. But I initially started out being fascinated with these, these battles and being able to walk in the footsteps of people who were there and to stand on a rock where we know that X soldier died. So, you know, here's an example, Daniel. On uh, Saturday morning, my brother-in-law, he, has, he doesn't have any interest in history, which is, which is fine. Um, we drove 100 miles east of, of Nashville to uh, White County uh, near Sparta. And we started our we bike ride, we ride our, not motorcycles, road bikes uh, every weekend. And we started, I said, let's start at France Cemetery. And that's where Champ Ferguson, the Confederate guerrilla is buried. And he was hanged by the uh, U.S. government for war crimes in 1865. But right down this remote road, the, the Monterey Highway, the Battle of Dug Hill was fought February 22nd, 1864. And in the book, I have not one, but two stories about this. And I go out there with, with a descendant, a young man named, young to me. Uh, he's 28, 29. He might be 30 now, still young to me. Uh, his ancestor was probably there. Um, but the battle, it was actually a skirmish between U.S. Army cavalry and uh, conf mainly Confederate guerrillas. But I went out there uh, after my brother-in-law and I did our 30-mile bike ride. We went to the, and I'll get to my point. We went to the Calf Killer Brewery, had a beer. I had the uh, Scorned Hooker IPA. It was really good. It was great. But then I met a state trooper there who, who's I'm sorry, third Hooker named after a general? <laughs> no, it's a scorn. Not, or no, a I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know how they name their beers out, out there, but I give them credit for being colorful. <laughs> but anyway, the, the main mission was to meet this 39-year-old state trooper who uh, knew, the, knew the, the nooks and crannies of the, the Battle of Dug Hill, and he, and he took me all over the place back there. We were back in the woods and, and we saw this old uh, abandoned mansion from the 1920s. And he took me, took me back to Confederate guerrilla Champ Ferguson's home site where he lived in the area. And he was living in that house when the U.S. government came to, to take him back to Nashville where he had a trial and they eventually hanged him. But anyway, my point is that these obscure places hold, for me anyway, such a fascination. And, you know, 
uh, I was talking to an, a fellow author of mine. His name's, uh, he's a friend of mine from Pittsburgh named Tom McMillan. He's written books about uh, 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 9-11 and uh, Civil War book. And, and he has a, another book out recently. And uh, we, were, we were talking over beers in Boonesboro, Maryland. And, and we, we, I go, what, you know, why do we do this? What's the reason? And, he, and I'm paraphrasing, but he had said something to the effect of being able to walk in the footsteps of these people is so fascinating and so intriguing and so interesting that you either get it or you don't get it. And obviously I get it, okay? I, to me, it's so fascinating to be able to do this. So I've been to... Picacho Pass in Arizona, the, the West, supposedly the westernmost battle of the Civil War. I've been to Bryce's Crossroads and Champion Hill in Mississippi. And and I've got a whole list of other places I want to go too. What was your original question? Did I did I go off the beaten path? Am I am I like deep in the woods here now or what? <laughs> Where's my wine getting to me? I don't know yet. So, no, it's all right. Uh, it's all good. It's all good. And uh, you'll notice I'm talking a little bit. I, I, I'm sorry. Are you able to, to lower your volume maybe just a little bit? I just did it. Yeah. Sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> Apologies. That's okay. I just, I could hear myself uh, giggling like a, like a crazy man. Uh, I'll just, I'll, I'll splice that little part out. Okay. <laughs> and I'll just start right here. Uh, no, no, you haven't gone too far astray into the wilderness. Uh, my question was basically of all these almost innumerable battles, most people, and it's somewhat saddening to, to, well, to discuss this point, but most people could maybe name you two battles and they're on, they grace the cover of your book, actually, Antietam and Gettysburg. I think probably most people could could get those two. Yes. But you, in your book, I, and I like to fancy myself somewhat historically literate, but like you said, you were mentioning battles about which I had no idea and no. What, about which I was fascinated to learn. Um, so the question really was, and you answered it was, you know, how does, um, how do you find the appeal in these very obscure battles and these little skirmishes and maybe a follow-up question would be do you ever do you ever kick yourself for having not known about them sooner do you sort of pride yourself on knowing you know every little skirmish that occurred on this uh, during this continental war because that's truly what it was it like you said from arizona to maryland from florida up to Massachusetts and, you know, in, in Pennsylvania, there, there was action everywhere. It really was a continental conflict. Um, so what do you think about that? That, I mean, first of all, you're, you're flattering me by saying I know about every one of these little, little conflicts. I really don't. It's just that when I find an interesting one, I love digging in and finding out more. And here's an example. Um, outside of Richmond, Virginia, in uh, 1864, I think I have the year right. Yeah, it's eight, uh, it might have been 1865. I wrote about it in the book, 
the battle of new market heights took place mm -hmm. and it was largely uh, uh, what's interesting about this battle and the battlefield is that uh, and I think I have the number right. I write about it in the book is 14 U.S. colored troops uh, earned the Medal of Honor for, for for valor at the Battle of New Market Heights. And if they had pierced the Confederate defenses uh, and they had a shot, um, black troops could have been among the first or the first troops to march into Richmond in 1865. Well, I went there uh, twice. Once I went and I interviewed the descendant of one of the USCT troops who earned the Medal of Honor, uh, and the guy, uh, the guy, the des descendant was Damon Radcliffe, just a super guy. We we uh, we walked around Fort Harrison, where where his an ancestor uh, ended up being based after after the battle for a while, and then I was with Tim Talbot, uh, who's deeply interested in the experience of uh, black soldiers and slaves and and uh, the black experience during the Civil War. And, and a lot, lot, many of these stories have been pushed into the margins of history. And I remember going uh, after a very bad night's sleep at a sleazy flea bag uh, hotel in Richmond going out to meet Tim one morning and he and we walked deep into the woods and the, our first stop was the, the Confederate earthworks which you can still see deep in the woods it was an amazing experience uh, another worldly experience almost we and, and Tim turns to me and goes uh, is this remote enough for you uh, and you see this these earthworks deep in the woods. And, and I didn't know much about the battle of New Market Heights, uh, you know, before before I got there, but being there and being able to walk on that ground, to, to stand where the Texas Brigade fired on these black troops and then to go 300 or 400 more yards in the woods down to this creek where the USCT formed up, that's an otherworldly experience and being there being able to walk the ground inspired me to come back to nashville where we live to, to learn more about it and what i do what my storytelling does is i always like to have a present day character like tim or damon ratcliffe who's a descendant of a u.s color troop soldier as the vehicle to get into the, to tell the history of these places. And uh, that was just an amazing, first of all, I've never sweat so much as I did at New Market Heights in Richmond. We did it in August, which was insanely dumb. I mean, I can't tell you how dumb that was, but I, I traveled whatever, 500 miles from Nashville to, to, to do that. Um, but so I don't, my knowledge of these places that, that you may not have heard about, Daniel, or others is not, I don't have supreme knowledge of all these places, but when I find out a story that's interesting, like New Market Heights where 14 USCT soldiers earned the Medal of Honor, that's fascinating. And, and what's, what's interesting and sad to me is that, 
you know, when we think about the black experience during the Civil War, many people think of the movie Glory, right? Famous movie tells the story of the 54th Massachusetts and Robert Gouldshaw. And who was the actor who played Robert Gouldshaw? You remember? Uh, Not in that name. It was uh, very famous. It'll come to me later. But a really famous movie about the Civil War. What, what Tim Talbot and I thought about as we're at New Market Heights is why wasn't a movie made about the Battle of New Market Heights and these and these black soldiers there? I'm sorry, I'm just uh, looking looking up the cast. Uh, Matthew Broderick, I think. Matthew Broderick. Yeah, yeah I don't, I remember Denzel. I remember Denzel and Morgan Freeman. But yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Spot yeah. on. You nailed it. Thanks for wow. coming up with that. With a little Google assistance. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah. just uh, for clarification, for everyone out there listening, you said the USCT, and that stands for what? United States Colored Troops. Toward the end of the war, uh, uh, you know, black regiments were formed, and, you know, originally they were used to black, black soldiers were built roads and did mundane tasks and Eventually, the uh, Lincoln and the United States government came around and used them as fighting troops. And uh, they found out uh, at New Market Heights uh, and elsewhere that black troops would, would fight bravely. And, 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 you know, their stories, I, you know, I, unfortunately, uh, more of them need to be told. And that's why I have not one but two stories about New Market Heights uh, in my book. So... And I think, if I recall correctly, there was a battle of New Market Heights and a battle of New Market. Is that correct? Correct. And yeah, that's a that's a good observation. They're often confused. Uh, the battle of New Mar uh, battle of New Market was in the Shenandoah Valley, and uh, I don't have uh, I don't have the date in front. Of it. I believe it, it was in 1864. And uh, I-81, inter the dreaded Devil's Highway, I-81 which I've traveled many times, unfortunately, um, and uh, bisects the, the, the battlefield as it does many battlefields in the Shenandoah Valley. So I hate that road, Daniel. <laughs> I hate I hate it with passion. Yeah, during my time in, in Luray, I spent a brief while in Luray. I, I think I drove on more than a couple of times. But this leads me into another um, point and that is the way in which the world has changed and these environments, these battlefields, these places um, have, undergone, have undergone such uh, alterations through these years. And it must be a little bit uh, demoralizing to somebody like you who's trying to step upon or in the, you know, in the footsteps of those forebears who fought in these battles. So <clears throat> on your website, you have these remarkable images that display when you when you hover over them and drag your cursor across what the battlefield looked like in the past, you know, as far back as the photography would allow you to see and what it looks like today. So when you arrive at a location <clears throat> to find that a strip mall has been erected there, or there's a waffle house where, you know, apparently, you know, allegedly the, the great event of this battle took place. How does that feel? 
it destroys a little bit of your soul. Um, I will preface that by saying, I mean, look, here's reality, okay? People have to live somewhere, okay? Um, I get it. All right, I, I live in Nashville. I'm roughly seven miles from Shy's Hill, which was the left. And I'm not a left flank, right flank person, Daniel. It hurts my head. Um, but Shy's Hill was the left flank of the Confederate Army at the Battle of Nashville on December 16, 1864. I was at Shy's Hill the other day to, to meet a friend to, to, to give him his Union Army bayonet back, believe it or not. And uh, Shy's Hill is ringed with houses now. Um, and there's various reasons for that. But I think uh, respectful development uh, can take place. Uh, I think there are various organizations that have really led the charge in helping save battlefield land. The American Battlefield Trust is one of them. Uh, I'm on the board of the Save Historic Antietam Foundation, which is terrific. And I'm on the Battle of National Trust Board, too. But just to give you an example, for years, we used to, you know, when I worked at ESPN, we used to take, you know, vacation with my wife and girls and go down the equally dreaded I-95. And we'd, we'd, be, we'd slice through Virginia and we'd past Fredericksburg and for years I couldn't get off at that exit because when you go down the old uh, what used to be the old plank road out past Salem Church where a battle was fought the battle of Salem Church was fought in 1863 it's horrendous it's nothing but Taco Bells and that's not one of your sponsors is it, by the way Taco Bell and Battlefield, you need to get a sponsor, Battlefield (laughs) Dentist, and and then you see this church that was there at the time of the battle, Salem Church, and it's surrounded by this hodgepodge of urban schlock. As you go farther down the road, Battle of Chancellorville took place, and, and you look to your right, there's a housing development. And the national park, had, you know, there's there's quite a bit of ground for the national park, but you have to weave through these housing developments to to see some of this stuff. And you know, you go farther down the road, you have the wilderness, and you know, it's it's roughly the, the same experience. So to answer your question, it's soul sucking when it happens in what I consider a disrespectful way, and you know. This is hallowed ground. This is where Americans fought and died and 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 had this like to me the, the Civil War is the is the seminal experience. It, it's the the it's the it's still resonating today, I think, obviously. And uh, so I guess it's a long-winded way of saying it's it's soul sucking. I wish it could be different in many places, but unfortunately it's not. And uh, to the credit uh, of many of these preservation organizations, much land has been saved and that and that's gratifying to me, so. Yeah, it seems to me that we are distilling 
some lessons still today uh, from the Civil War, um, but perhaps we're not taking a really comprehensive view of everything that happened. And I certainly don't think that our appreciation for how seismic an event it was is, is as it should be. Uh, do you think that generally interest in the, the real history of the Civil War is waning? And perhaps even more broadly, do you think that interest in American history is kind of on the decline? That's an interesting question. Um, I will say this, you know, I speak around, you know, I'm going to be speaking in Charleston, South Carolina in October, uh, other places. I will say that when I go to speak at these places, all the people are either look like me or they're older than, than I am. Okay. Um, occasionally you'll find, you know, younger people there. So just anecdotally, um, I think younger people aren't as interested in, in that or, or in American history. And I, I think that's unfortunate. Who, who was the philosopher, Sanayana, the philosopher, uh, those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. Uh, I think it's one of my favorite quotes, and I think it's, you know, what these events, th these events that happened dur during the Civil War throughout history, we can always use to help us plot a path forward. And if we're not learning about uh, the Civil War and slavery and uh you know, what life was like in the 1860s during this this incredible event from 1861 to 1865. I think we're, we're cheating the future, right? Um, so I think it's unfortunate. I think the answer is yes. I don't think as many people care about it. And if you look at current events, um, you know, politicians today, we all know the names. Um, my blood pressure will go up talking about it, but you know, you live in Florida, you know, the story, right? I, I think that the, the, you know, Kennedy had a, had, and I'm paraphrasing, but JFK gave a speech in, I think it was in 1962, the voice of America, I think it was the birth of the voice of America. Okay. And I'm paraphrasing, but he, he wanted, uh, the voice of America to tell the story of the of America, warts and all. Okay, that's I I, uh, I wish I had the quote in front of me, but I, I, I'm a huge believer in that. We have to be able to confront our past, and you know, slavery, civil rights, uh, the assassinations of the '60s, all that stuff. We need to know about it because you can trace many of the issues that are happening today in society to what happened during from 1861 to 1865. I firmly believe in that. So, yeah, and, and I would to concur. Um, it is heartening though to to, to know that um, when you go to speak at these venues, they're well mm -hmm. attended, or when you put out blog posts they're well read and well received or when you release a fine book like this 
you know, it, it has a good wide circulation. So that's why I really asked you that question, because in some ways you are on the ground floor and you're able to gauge the interest um, in this seminal event, this transformational event, um, whose repercussions, like you said, we're still feeling today. Um, so I hope to the younger viewers out there who are listening um, that this conversation in some way stimulates your interest. You go out and, and get a book like, um, like, um, like John's and others, uh, and maybe watch the, the, the Burns documentary and maybe even visit some of these sites, of which, like you said, there are just so many. Uh, speaking of all these battles, uh, if you had to, if you were able to transplant yourself back into history, and I'm sure you've thought about this, if you could select one battle in which you could have fought, uh, what battle would that have been? Oh, man, that's a great question. But I know the answer right off the bat. Uh, battle of Antietam, September 17th. 1862, being a 40-acre cornfield with the 16th Connecticut. Rookie regiment, first battle of the war, didn't know what they were doing, uh, hadn't even fired the rifles in anger for the most part. The 40-acre cornfield is a rolling cornfield. They go up there, it's the afternoon, it's roughly 4.30, uh, out of the... Uh, uh, off Harper's Ferry Road come A.P. Hill's veterans, Confederate soldiers. They, they hit them in the left flank. Total chaos. And when I lived in, when we lived in Connecticut, uh, I got to know these soldiers. I, I'd go to cemeteries and find their graves and dig into archives and pull out their pictures and find their stories and all kinds of stuff. And when I, I had a birthday, a uh, big birthday several years ago, my and my wife. The lovely Mrs. B was a character in my book. She went there with me and I told her, I said, Carol, when I'm gone, I want my my ashes. Show her picture. Oh, you keep you talking. Know. You continue. I'll I, told her, I want my ashes spread in the 40 acre cornfield. And I told her to please do not tell the National Park Service. I think you have to have I think this is my favorite, my favorite image in the book. <laughs> I, read the caption. Read the caption I, I, is I was, cracking, I was cracking up when I, when I read this. So it's Carol Banks' wife. Uh, the beloved Mrs. B keeps me laughing. And I am on the right. Yeah. I, I have, Daniel, I have a refined sense of humor. Oh, it, comes from my, it comes from my days growing up in Pittsburgh where I had my... Uh, my equally, uh, all, all our friends could, all my circle of friends, we became very adept at sticking it to one another. And it, it just carried over to the book. And I want to stress that this book, I have to be part salesman here. This is not a typical Civil War book. Okay. This is not a right flank, left flank book. This is about my experiences going to these places meeting present day characters and then weaving in weaving highlighting they all have this many of them have this what i call the civil war death stare in which you get them rolling on a topic and they're just you can just see it in their eyes that they that that this is important to them and then i, I, I and then i weave in the 
uh, bring in a sense of place. And that's that's my whole intent. And then tell a story. So yeah, anyway. yeah. I think I'm I, in your eyes right now. <laughs> yeah, I, well, it could be the wine. <laughs> and it could be the smoke coming. It could be the smoke coming from my candle. From your Christmas candle. Yeah. It's yeah. not illegal smoke. It's it's we have, candle smoke. So yeah, yeah. It's it's, anyway. kosher. it's all kosher. But no, yeah, there's the there's that phrase between the the intersection of the three the civil war the wine and the there you Yankee, go the yankee candle the yankee candle good choice for this yes that's interesting <laughs> i didn't think about that yankee candle mm -hmm. there you go that's yeah, awesome yeah. i think uh to our to our southern friends there you might yes want to consider a, a more neutral <laughs> next time i'll get confederate candle or something like that <laughs> Nathan Bedford Forest candle. Yeah, maybe have some Southern comfort <laughs> for a drink and ah, a candle. Although, um, although I don't, I don't touch that stuff anymore, Daniel. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Well, neither Had do a bad I. experience for. We'll save that for another podcast. <laughs> from the from the West Virginia days, perhaps. No, it was from. Oh, we'll just leave it at that. Okay, okay. A recent um, historical event. We'll just <laughs> we'll just let that go. All right. And a more historical event. If you could fight under any general on either side, Confederate, rebel, or Yankee Union, under whom would you want to have fought? Uh, I'm going to say the Sledge of Nashville, George Thomas, a native Virginian who stayed loyal to his country. And you know, he, he led troops here at the Battle of Nashville in December 1864. Much to admire about him, uh, a native Virginian who stayed loyal to his country. And there were many others, uh, Southerners, who stayed loyal to the United States, too. So I deeply admire him. Uh, the anniversary of the Battle of Chickamauga was yesterday. He, he, he led a stand at Snodgrass Hill at Chickamauga. So, and I may be there on... Sunday, on my way back from the uh, University of Alabama Georgia game, I've been invited to to go to the game down there. I may, I think I'm going to stop there, and I'll I'll pay my respects to George Thomas. I'll raise a glass of uh, something, not Southern Comfort, something else, <laughs> maybe a beer, an IPA. Yeah, the, you should raise the the Hooker uh, IPA, uh, named yeah. after Hooker, of course. Um, um, as an as an adopted Tennessean, maybe just yes. very briefly, you can you can comment on the peculiarity of that state during the Civil War because it was a, geographically it's a Southern state. Um, of course, it is the home to a certain. 17th president uh and the first to have been impeached um so yes. tell us tell us a little bit about tennessee's role in the civil war just briefly sure that's an interesting question and you're referencing andrew johnson who succeeded uh lincoln um interesting state uh tennessee sent more uh soldiers to the uh served in the union army than than any other southern state the eastern part of the state uh, which was more uh, more mountainous and, and thus people didn't have a need for, for slaves nor an inclination uh, for some of them. Uh, most of them came from the eastern part of the state. Where I'm from in, in this area right here, slavery, slavery was very prevalent 
In fact, just down the road are uh, probably four miles, three miles away are uh, two uh, remaining slave cabins. If you go a little bit farther, there's there's two other slave cabins. So this area we're on at, slavery was prevalent, and and this area for for the most part was uh, sent many soldiers to the uh, Confederate Army. Um, as much as you are a Civil War aficionado and uh, chronicler of battles, you're also a road tripper, apparently an indefatigable road tripper, capable of traversing uh, many hundreds, if not thousands of miles <laughs> with little more than uh, a little cup of coffee and a, a song on the radio. Um, totally. So what are your methods of entertainment while driving these long distances? Are you um, a audiobooks type of person? Do you like podcasts? Is it just strictly music? Are you uh, just alone with your thoughts? What do you do while driving to divert your, your attention? From yeah, sometimes I'm alone with my thoughts, but I crank the radio loud. I mean, really loud. Pearl Jam. Uh, I mean, Credence Clearwater Revival. I love them. I love them. They're so great. Uh, sometimes I'll put on uh, Civil War talk radio, excellent podcast. I'll be on there December 6th, by the way, with Jerry Prokopovich. He's great. I love him. He's, he kept me going. I, I pack away uh, lots of red licorice, some tea, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and, and I rarely, I mean, I have long haul trucker in my DNA. And there is like, Daniel, I, I started out in Gettysburg. Like I was interviewing, just interviewing Ron Palm, who, who's a collector of Civil War images. He's in the book, an amazing guy. One of my, from Western Pennsylvania. So you know he can't be a bad guy. But I was in Gettysburg that morning, interviewed him for a couple hours. And then drove all the way back to Nashville, and I just rock and roll. So the key to success on a on a, on a road trip, not just a Civil War road trip, but at least for me, red licorice, a big bag of red licorice, pack a little tea, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I know a Civil War collector named Robert, uh, who's a retired doctor who, when he goes to Civil War shows that like to buy artifacts, he, he, he packs like 500 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches because he doesn't want to spend money on dining <laughs> anywhere. He wants it all to go to buying Civil War relics. Um, but yeah, red licorice, peanut butter, jelly sandwiches, <laughs> tea, and have some long haul trucker in your DNA. Not everybody can do that. I am supremely good at it. So. No, it's certainly, certainly not on that, on that diet. Not everybody can do that. And you got to power through it. You talk about, you talk about, um, you talk about that in the book. You talk about the red licorice. You, oh yes, in the sandwiches. So of course I had to ask. I, I'm surprised that it's not beef jerky. It's something a little. I mean, oh no, less perishable. You're you're no. going with things that have the the potential to spoil. So hopefully, well, maybe not the licorice. But <laughs> I'm in good shape, so I don't worry about uh, eating consuming a bag of fifty licorice sticks. 
I just, I just either a walk it off or, you know, a lot of these trips I'll bring my bike and I'll just, I'll bike it off. So I don't worry about it. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. And sometimes, you know, you gotta like four hours sleep. You, you gotta, you gotta be strong. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I had a, I had a writer who, uh, worked with at ESPN. He says, you know, I can sleep when I die. And that's kind of, that's kind of my mentality. So. <laughs> Well, that turns us back to the point with which we began this conversation. Your yes. Yak um, tendencies. <laughs> yes. Something to do with the copious amounts of <laughs> red licorice you're consuming during during the day. I no, need you I, as my. You need to be my psychiatrist, probably. I don't know. I don't know if even I can counteract the effects of uh, of, your, <laughs> of your road trip menu. <laughs> yes. Uh, do you prefer the? The pull apart licorice or the 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 you know the traditional licorice that you just bite oh off? it's the you get the you get the big bag and you just pull those suckers apart <laughs> and I, I eat like twenty at a time it, I mean it's shameful it really is it's it's <laughs> disgusting but you know we should talk civil war eats before we we conclude here too because I, I am a I have on my blog a list of my favorite civil war eats places if you want to go there if you don't want to go there I understand. <laughs> I want to go everywhere that you've mentioned to be completely <laughs> honest. Um, and I want to visit all these, these wonderful people whom you've interviewed. There are some interesting characters here. And again, that's again, why the book is so compelling because like you said, it's not just talking about battlefield formations and strategy yes. and tactics. You're, you're drawing in these, these personalities from the modern age. And, you know, some of them are, it's, I always find the contrast so striking when you take an image from, you know, 1864, you have uh, President Lincoln standing with uh, McClellan and a lot of the staff surrounding him. And it's, there's such um, gravitas to their, to their posture and, and everybody always strikes a certain pose. You'll see this in the the mid 19th century. it's like almost a dandyish approach to photography. The yes. men always, they, they'll always stand akimbo or they'll, you know, with yes. one hand on the waist or they'll have one foot up on a, on a, on a, a fence pole or, or, you know, there's, there's a real theatricality to it. And I, I love that about the, the early age of photography. And then with us, it's like, you know, just a guy in sweatpants with his, his shirt tucked in with yeah. with white socks and loafers and it's like it it you know there's no offense to the modern the the sartorial choices of the modern day but there's just something so absolutely uh, something so totally. powerful about those old images that i love why well, intentionally you know i shot all the pictures for the uh for the book and i intentionally shot almost every every character in the book the same way looking looking askance, um, and that was intentional. Uh, you, you see that in a lot of Civil War photography, uh, portrait photography, and, I, and I, had, I, I collect Civil War soldier photos. Um, and, you know, so that was intentional to kind of give you that Civil War type feel. Enjoyed doing that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, on that point, uh, what is your favorite thing? the book of all the people that you photographed and all of the uh, past images that you included from the uh, mid 19th century which did you like most uh, there's a couple there uh sid champion at 
Champion Hill Battlefield in, in uh, Mississippi, rural Mississippi. His his great 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 I think I have it right. Great great grandparents owned the plantation that was the vortex of the battle. And he and I, uh, on a really hot day, on the anniversary of the battle, May 16th, 1863, I believe, we were, I was there on the anniversary. He's just a character. We're on the, what's called the Hill of Death. And I posed him there. And uh, he, the battlefield is deeply meaningful to him. Uh, as an aside, when he was a kid, uh, well, maybe a little older than a kid, maybe 19, he and his he and his buddies would go to the hill of death, take a take a sled. They they have a few alcoholic beverages in them, and they would slide down the hill of death in some fashion. So he, he the picture of him in the book is, is it, it brings back really good memories. And then there's an image of my close uh, friend Richard Clem, 82 years old, uh, the Babe Ruth of storytellers, and I posed him on the old Otto uh, J. Smith farm. It was a uh, U.S. Army hospital in the aftermath of the Battle of Antietam. And I posed him on the site where he found an ID disc for a Vermont uh, soldier who, who was mortally wounded at the Battle of Antietam. He, he's a relic hunter and he found his ID disc there. Uh, and I posed him right on that site. And Richard is just a superior human being and whenever I see that picture of him, it brings back uh, a lot of fond memories for me. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. like I said, a lot of the, the imagery in this book is, is striking um, and really gives life to the narrative that you're trying to tell and that you succeed in telling. Um, but I couldn't but notice more than a couple pictures in which you're seen to be wearing a West Virginia University hat and an Alabama University hat. You mentioned that you're going to be in attendance at the upcoming uh, Alabama game. Uh, so I have to ask, to which school do you pledge your allegiance? I know uh, the Crimson Tide are certainly in, in need of some moral support this, this yes. year. Yes. <laughs> well, it should be noted that the game I'm going to on Saturday is the Alabama-Birmingham at Georgia game. Oh. So, Note that, um, uh, yeah, um, I don't know. It's hard to say right now. There's some things going on at my alma mater that I'm not real happy with. So we'll just we'll just pick another topic for now. <laughs> well, the other topic that I desperately want to discuss with you, but I think we should maybe shelve for the next time that we are together is the JFK assassination. Um, but it's, I think, too too deep a topic to delve into at this Oh, time. yes. Would you agree? Yeah, that's a rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot about it, though, and, and have been interested in it for a long, long time. It, that was my other obsession for, for, for a while as a kid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I could tell you a lot of stories. Yeah, and having worked at the Dallas Morning News for twenty, almost 22 years and right down the street from Dealey Plaza and having access to a lot of people in the archives. and Yeah. Now, yeah. That's, it's a rabbit hole into which I'd be very willingly led 
by you. I'll uh, take you there. Uh, <laughs> you can save that for the next podcast if you're interested in that. I'd be happy to. Behind me on the shelf is a copy. When I was 15, 16 years old, this is in the 70s, uh, I got a copy of the Zapruder film, a bootleg copy. We can we can talk about that and how I got it. Uh, I and I hope to do that. I want to leave you though with one with one prompt, maybe one setup on which you can comment just briefly, if possible. Sure. And I I say this because I just read it today and it struck me as particularly relevant to our conversation. It, an article published in Vanity Fair on the 9th of September in anticipation of former Secret Service agent mm -hmm. Paul Landis's forthcoming book, Final Witness, states, and I'm quoting here, Landis spotted a bullet resting on the top of the back of the seat of the vehicle. He says he picked it up, put it in his pocket, and brought it into the hospital. Then, upon entering trauma room number one, he insists he placed the bullet on a white cotton blanket on the president's stretcher. The article's author concludes that Landis's story, for several reasons, is not just possible. It, in fact, makes more sense than the core finding of the Warren Commission known as the single bullet theory. So perhaps I'm wrong to introduce what is a very large topic at this point as we conclude this episode. But what do you think about that passage excerpted from a Vanity Fair article? Yeah, I read the entire piece, so I'm very familiar with it. It, it, could, it. You know, if true, it's a game changer. You have to know the intricacies of the assassination to understand the importance of that, what he said there. Um, I've got a lot of questions about that, um, but we can save that for down the road <laughs> before before we descend into, into a, a rabbit hole from which we may not be able to uh, come up for air again so that could be this could turn into a three-hour podcast i don't i don't know if you want to go there understood, understood. But that's a, it's a very fascinating piece understood. and the man paul landis seemed, the secret service agent seems uh very credible so to, to, yeah yeah to my uh, you know assessment it, he does seem to be a credible guy um, quite yes. ace. I guess the question is why he waited so long these what nine yes. decades to, right yeah. and the, the author of the article he does address that uh, yes again I have to apologize for throwing that that line out into no. the water sort of pulling I'm it always, back <laughs> I will but, always talk about that topic plus we can talk about my uh, my day spent partial day spent at the uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's rooming house in, in Oak Cliff with mm. the granddaughter of the woman who rented the room to him. I'd love I to think, tell the story of that. Yeah, I would yeah, love I to hear it. it. And uh, I think my favorite my favorite image of yours is probably you in, <laughs> in, in Oswald's in room, Oswald's room with your foot on the bed <laughs> stretched out. <laughs> the only thing better would have been a bag of licorice by your side. <laughs> so Next time I'll do that. So you should have loonies like me on every podcast. <laughs> oh, I'd be honored. Uh, John, with, with that, <laughs> is there any final message with which you'd like to leave our audience today? Buy the book. All the money goes to Mrs. B. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, think, I think I'll leave you with this. Uh, 
history is important, okay? The Civil War, Civil War history in particular, it's not just the battles and who fought where and all that type of stuff. Everything, the causes of it, the reasons for it, slavery, all that stuff is, is important. To me, it's the most interesting uh, 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 five years in, in our nation's history. Uh, it resonates today in, in many, many different ways. Uh, so I encourage people, you know, it's not just, like I said, it's not just the battles, it's, it, it's a lot of stuff. And it, it's, it's hard to get your arms around it, um, but it's, it's endlessly fascinating to me. The people who live during the era are fascinating and uh, all their stories resonate today. And again, the book is not a right flank, left flank book. Uh, it's part travelogue, part memoir, part history and give it a whirl. So very, very eloquently put. Um, succinctly put and i second everything that you said get yourself a big pack of licorice settle down with this book uh, you'll read it and i guarantee that you'll enjoy it and also <clears throat> after you do so be sure to visit john's blog uh, on which there's a multitude of great articles and and opinion pieces it's just a really a joy to, to read like i said you have this uh, wonderful combination of erudition of, of deep knowledge and also of wit and humor. And I love that, that mixture of the two. It really makes for a fine reading experience. So That's John, again, nice. of course, of course. And very I, very nice of you to say that. Of course. And I mean it sincerely. And I have to thank you with equal sincerity for joining me today, uh, for giving me so much of your time. Again, we could talk um, ad infinitum about some of these topics. And I hope to have you back again, especially to talk about the JFK assassination mm. and some other topics that might be on your mind. Danger um, zone. Danger <laughs> zone. <laughs> and, mm. and any other conspiracy that I think mm. might, be worth, might be worth covering or uncovering. Well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate you having me. This has been very, uh, very interesting. And, and, and for me, it was thought provoking. So I need to run out and get a get a Hemingway book now. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's the whole idea to have a thought provoking conversation, a stimulating one, an entertaining one, and you certainly provided the entertainment <laughs> and the enlightenment today. Um, to all the viewers out there, the listeners, the, the friends of mine who have joined me on this little platform and on this journey, uh, please do consider checking out John's you know, his sites, buy his book. And please don't hesitate to subscribe to this channel and continue to help it grow. And with that, I fare thee all well from Finneran's Wake. Shout, Daniel. 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 Shout, Daniel.